Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Once people leave evangelicalism, they leave it to a certain level. Yeah. But there are still aspects of one's, I think, character, maybe maybe one's spiritual journey, where you're still trying to speak backwards sure. to the community that you left. So where are you sitting right now? This is my office. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you get my newsletter or not, but my newsletter is called The Cottage. Yes. And this is actually The Cottage. So oh, it's a little 10 by 15 foot building that Richard and I built in the backyard about, oh, 12 years ago, probably. Good. And, um, you know, has all my books. And yeah. this is where I write. And there's right in front of me. And you can probably tell because my face is really you know, lit. That's yeah. all natural light. And nice. there's a whole bank of windows that's just out, looks out over my garden. And Lovely. so right now the beans are growing and the peas are coming up and the tomato plants are out there. So um, this is, uh, this is where I work, the cottage. Good. Well, let me uh, introduce you because we're okay. sort of going live at this Great. point. Uh, I am talking uh, today with an author of a new book called Freeing Jesus. And that's a friend of mine, Diana Butler Bass, who is also an academic and a professor and has done many things, but we're going to talk about her. This is the book. I don't know if you can see how many pages I've turned down here. Do you see? (gasps) Oh my gosh. Yes, I read it. You did. I I marked many places and I wanted to start today um, before we you know, get into the discussion by asking you about yourself a little bit. But, and then I have a passage, you know, I like when I read a book to try to find a paragraph or a line or two that I think in a way is where the essence of the book lies, where the the writer has managed not even intentionally to summarize, but somehow it's like, okay, this is what this book is about. And I picked a passage, so you'll be interested. Um, it is on page 199. Uh, so it took you 199 pages to finally get there, but you did. No, I'm only <laughs> kidding. <laughs> but but I'll read it to you in a minute. But but before we get in there, um, for people who don't know you, um, we both come from evangelical backgrounds. We both sort of left them and and also retained elements of faith in our life in terms of uh, looking for meaning and what we've derived from this. We're going to talk about your book in some depth here, but why don't you... Um, the book has a little bit of a thumbnail about your own journey, Diana, as a human being, as a person raised as a Christian in evangelical Christianity. A little bit of the PTSD, I guess, you've suffered coming out of that, and it's a lifelong journey and battle. I want to get into other elements of the book, but why don't you give me a thumbnail history of your life as just a human being and someone who has you know, walked this path of faith, but at the same time, really left the charted safe territory that you grew up in and made other decisions. Can you just give me a thumbnail of that? Because otherwise I've got to try to reconstruct your life from the book. And I think you know more about it than me. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think one of the differences between the two of us and, and something I think, you know, 
fuels the energy, you know, when we, we talk together is that my background is a little different from yours. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was raised in a fairly conventional Methodist family. Right. I was born in 1959, lived in a heavily German immigrant neighborhood in Baltimore City. And so my first experiences of church were of a fairly, oh, what I would call sort of 1950s, 1960s, generous, mostly theologically liberal, but still somehow culturally conservative Protestantism that was very typical in the middle part of the 20th century. And and so that's where I started. Uh, But when I was uh, 13 years old, my folks moved from Maryland to Arizona and they broke up broke ties with the Methodist church and and they were pretty young they were only in their 30s and they sort of went off on their own sort of spiritual and personal journeys leaving us kids I had a brother and sister um, to our own devices and it was at that point as a young teenager when I fell into evangelical Christianity and chose it for myself yeah. And that that became the no, sort of the next stage of of my life through my teen years and early adulthood. And what brand uh, of evangelicalism was that? The beginning for you? What did you fall into as you put it? The the church that I joined in Scottsdale as a 14-year-old was a church called Scottsdale Bible Church. And mm. um then it had about 300 members and now I think it has 20,000. Oh okay, they were I doing mean, all right. <laughs> It's a giant mega church now. Yeah. And I, I, almost every time I go back to Scottsdale, I, I just sort of drive onto the campus and I, I look at it and go, uh, wow, you know, yeah. it's got a seminary and all kinds of stuff. Um, so, it, but it was a pretty, uh, it was a church that at its very beginning was deeply shaped by Dallas Theological Seminary. Sure. And, and so all of the first things I knew of evangelical Christianity was what I would call it, it was more it was more open than fundamentalism, but less open than some other parts of evangelicalism. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a hybrid of the two. And yet everything was about the end of the world and dispensationalism. And I can remember sitting in church, having grown up Methodist with like, you know, 10 minute sermons. And um, there was this one time the pastor of our church preached a 55 minute sermon on less than half of a verse from the book of Chronicles. And I can remember as a teenager just being completely astonished by this. And so so that's where my first exposure to evangelicalism was in that tradition. But it was also the 1970s. So it was kind of the beginning of Christian rock. And my friends and I would go to Young Life and Christian rock concerts. And uh, I heard, you know, like Larry Norman and Keith Green and Randy Stonehill and kind of these classical rock, the the people who really found Christian rock and roll in concerts and churches all over Phoenix. And then I went to an evangelical college, Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. And then I went to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And that's where we first met. Although I remember you and I I met there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've we've mentioned this before there. You did not remember me and there's no reason you would. But I was just a student and you were like the famous son of Francis Schaefer. And and you came to campus to present, I think, one of your books. And um, I was in that conversation. And so so that's where we met. And but then after that, uh, Gordon, that would have been what year do you think I was there? I was at Gordon Conwell between 82 and 87. Okay. So basically, whenever we intersected, that was very close to the time when I was kind of getting ready to flee. So it's interesting because you probably saw one of the last times I was showing up in an evangelical context as a full bore son of Francis Schaefer about to do all this stuff because you know, but soon after that, by 85, I was in Hollywood trying to get out of the whole thing, making second rate feature films. <laughs> so <laughs> we were like ships passing in the night. Well, I do remember at Gordon Conwell, one of the professors saying, 
um, that you were having issues. Yeah, that was a nice way to put it. <laughs> and that was always, you know, that was always the warning sign. Yeah, it was. And probably, you know, there may be a little apostasy slipping in here or whatever it might be. Right. And I was not having issues at that point. I was trying to prove myself. Yeah. And, and so, so at Gordon Conwell, I was busy trying to fit in mm-hmm. uh, to the intellectual culture of evangelicalism in the 80s. Then I went on to Duke to get a PhD. And it was when I was at Duke, things really started. Uh, I, I realized I can't do this anymore. And yeah. it was about halfway through that. So you, you were starting to have your own issues as it were. Yeah. 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 About right about 1990. Yeah. And um, it's, it's funny because it's, you know, it's pride, pride month. And one of the big issues that was one of my first moments of, I, I don't write about this in freeing Jesus just because it didn't fit the, the narrative, but yeah. it's, it is part of the story. In 1989, one of my best friends from um, college died of AIDS. Hmm. And he had kept the fact that he was gay secret from all his yeah. friends. And we just literally didn't know um, until his funeral. And yeah. so the shock of being at this church in San Diego and having half of the people there be this sort of these evangelical young adults um, and the other half being people from the pride community in San Diego. And I can remember us sitting across, you know, from one another at the church and people were going like, I had no idea that those people existed. And that whole event just really was one of the pieces of my worldview that began to question a lot. Yeah. Make things shake up, shake up a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, so, that, yeah. So, no, no, go ahead. I'm not, I, I was so just anyway, going to say, yeah, I understand that. So the book proceeds basically in those three movements, uh, growing yeah. up United Methodist, this extended journey that I had um, within evangelicalism, especially in the, the 70s, 80s, and early 1990s, yeah. and then um, having to leave that and becoming the person I've become. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's and how if we you fast forward to this moment, and then we'll get into the book. And let me just pause here to say, again, uh, we are discussing with Diana Butler Bass, her new book, uh, Freeing Jesus, which I was showing her earlier, I have, what do you call that when you fold pages over and ruin books? What is I that? Call it dog eared. Yeah, dog ear. When I have dog eared the whole book uh, from one end to the other and marked a lot of passages. But um and we'll get into the book in a little minute here. So on the personal side, all right, somewhere in this, that's that's the theological journey. What about the personal journey in terms of relationships and where you live and the stage of life? And who do you hear from most by email when that was still being used? You know, I hear from a lot of people who came out of an evangelical background and are trying to grimly hold on to something or other, not sure what, because, you know, a bit of a lightning rod for that. And I know you, you are too, but talk about yourself personally for a minute first. Um, this is Frank Schaefer. We're live here on YouTube and uh, this will be on Facebook and also as a podcast uh, with my friend uh, Diana Butler Bass and we're discussing her book, Freeing Jesus. So can you do a little more of the personal raconteur about your own life outside of theology? Um, the, the, the fun part about that story that I was just telling you, you know, and then I landed here, you know, in yeah. the 1990s. And uh, where I where I landed is I, I wound up getting uh, remarried. I had been married to a person who was very evangelical in my first marriage. And then I got I got remarried and I married this guy who was a liberal Presbyterian. And um, <laughs> we are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary this year. Uh, we're in our early 60s. I, I'm 62. And today's actually his birthday. He turned 66. And what's and his name? His name is Richard. So and happy birthday, Richard. Yeah. And uh, we have a stepson. I have a stepson. I have a beautiful uh, daughter. And it's in the context of that remarriage that I really shifted my work over um, toward writing more about uh, mainline churches. And so in the last 25 years, having gotten remarried and finding myself in different kinds of churches and uh, raising a you know, two 
fairly liberal millennial kids and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Um, my work got associated with liberal mainline people. Yes. And so for the longest time, uh, you asked me about my email, who sends mm. me email on a daily basis, my email for years and years and years would be all mainline clergy, mostly people who were worried about if their churches were going to survive, yeah. their den- if their denominations were going to survive. Um, people kind of forgot that I had this sort of evangelical background. Mm. Um, and it's only recently that I've started to sort of reclaim that. And, you know, sort of the more personal stuff is that, you know, I, I love art. I love gardening. I love to read. I love to travel. Um, yeah. You know, I just- When you speak, uh, you, you're out on the road quite a bit. I am. Um, I know you and I crossed paths sometimes, I guess, most recently, a couple of years ago at the Wild Goose Festival uh, that we've both been to. Um, and I'll be down there again uh, this autumn, having missed last year because of COVID. And I'm wondering, what would you say is the sort of typical venue where you speak? And how often are you out on the road these days? Or event, Aside from the COVID anomaly, I mean, in, in, in regular life. Yeah, pre-pandemic, I was putting a uh, hundred thousand miles per year on United, and um, that would take me to most. I think that probably three quarters of my work were was in uh, mainline churches, and so yeah. I, nearly, uh, I, I'd say probably half of the weekends of the year, I would be out in some Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Congregationalist church, um, leading workshops, teaching people, uh, and uh, preaching. And so that was pretty typical. The other quarter, third of my life, I might be working at a, in a college setting, teaching yeah. at a seminary, leading a retreat, um, just all kinds of different uh, type venues Thanks. where yeah. people are interested in spirituality, changes in spirituality. Um, before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of lecturing on religion and politics, which is something I enjoy. Sure. Um, so, so that's the kind of thing that I've been doing, just traveling, traveling, traveling. Yeah. Did you find, you know, with the Trump years, because of the white evangelical base that essentially was the underpinning of his entire presidency, you know, you can take Vladimir Putin out and you can take the militias out and you can take Fox News out. But what you can't take out of the equation is the evangelical community. They right. made him, kept him president. Seventy percent of them say the election was stolen. They sort of going with the big lie. Um, I found, and I'm asking you what happened to you, that, you know, I had sort of seen a lot of my own work in this area almost in the past, like, okay, that was then, and now we're moving forward, and Hillary will be president, and, you know, this part of my life is over, and I'll do some other things. And, of course, after the presidency of Donald Trump, to put it very mildly, uh, you know, the evangelical movement is front and center in the news, and... um, uh, very much part of the American mix, because without it, there is not a Trump Republican Party. That is right. Trump Republican Party, led by people like uh, Ralph Reed and Franklin Graham and others who I knew well growing up as part of the community. How did that affect your, I won't call it a ministry, but your public persona? Because surely you're getting asked about this just like I've been. You know, why is this happening? How is this possible? Who are these people? Uh, what's this got to do with being evangelical? Just yeah. talk about that a little bit. Well, the, I think the first way that it began to have an impact on my work hmm. was that before Trump was elected, it, it was very clear that things were going wrong within evangelicalism. Hmm. And over the course of the last 12 years, I would say every single year when I was out on the road, people would more and more people would come up to me, Mm. you know, while I was was speaking at first congregational church and wherever Nashua, New Hampshire. And they would say, you know, Oh, I used to be an evangelical, yeah, but I I've left. And they almost always said that they left for some political reason um, that their church had decided that you couldn't be a Democrat and still be a Christian or, a lot of stuff about women's issues and gay issues were and it was very clear that there was this stream of people that was flooding out of evangelicalism and some level of them were coming toward mainline churches so i 
I started running into those folks on the road. And after, after Trump was elected, what had been kind of a steady stream mm. became nearly an explosion. Um, river. Yeah. Y- yeah. I mean, it was, it was huge. And all of a sudden I, I realized that my background in evangelicalism, I really kind of wanted to start to talk about it again mm. because I was receiving these stories from, you know, all of these folks and there was unprocessed grief. There was trauma. There were people who were 10, 20, sometimes 30 years younger than myself, um, who didn't know how, how did this happen? They kept asking over and over again and that they didn't even know the history of their own movement. And so I, I, in the, in recent years, um, I've gotten a, I think just a lot more uh, concerned Mm. with, in a sense, spiritually, and even I'm not a pastor, but I feel some level of pastoral care toward folks who feel homeless Mm. by and large from this, this, this huge shift that we both know so much about um, that rightward political shift of evangelicalism and how it displaced hundreds of thousands if not more people not to even mention the next generation looking at what they might belong to right I mean, they're not displaced as much as like forget this whatever that is we're not having any part of it yeah and i i can't you know i can't really blame them uh, and there are so many there are so many levels to these these questions about religious decline and people leaving evangelicalism. Uh, I frequently now run into, say, young mainline ministers who grew up Southern Baptist or Missouri Synod Lutheran, some yeah. sort of evangelical denomination. And they come into the Episcopal Church or the Presbyterian Church, and they've been told their entire lives that liberalism it theological liberalism is bad Hmm. and yet they wind up being pastors in mainline denominations where theological liberalism is one of the shaping currents yes of the tradition and so i see these young pastors and they 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 don't know how to speak into the traditions that they're now part of right and i i find that to be a a big concern um And, and when then, you say they don't know how to speak into the tradition, be specific. Well, um, there's a kind of, uh, uh, it's really interesting that people have left evangelical settings mm-hmm. because they disagreed with politics. So they disagreed, yeah. they, they thought that women should be able to be ordained. They have generally looser ideas about things like abortion, you know, the the abortion should be permitted legally, et cetera. And they certainly um, aren't opposed to gay marriage or, you know, people or, or any kind of legal rights for, for gay, lesbian, transgender people. So they have these very politically liberal attitudes, but they grew up with this sort of um, vaccine against um, Protestant liberal theology. Yeah. And so I'm literally watching now within mainline churches, there are these sort of young political progressives mm-hmm. who are theologically hating on the traditions of those own churches, which is kind of problematic. What would, uh, you, say the, what would you say the linchpin of their discomfort, if you had to summarize it for an alien, what is the linchpin of the discomfort with someone who grows up evangelical moves to the progressive side on a more political front, but brings with them the theological presuppositions and baggage from their fundamentalist childhoods. What's that hinge on? I think it hinges around biblical criticism, Mm -hmm. that they're still very uncomfortable with anything that resembles textual, literary, or historical Mm -hmm. criticism of the Bible, and that they want to hold on to uh, much more literalist. I mean, it's a little bit shocking, but they want to hold on to much more literalist interpretations mm. of both the Bible and the creeds. Mm. And um, 
there was one Twitter page I followed for a long time of a young lesbian Episcopal priest. And she said, um, I read the Bible conservatively. Therefore, I, I love gay people or therefore I'm a lesbian. It was something like right. that. And I, I looked at that and I thought, well, that's kind of odd because if yeah. the Episcopal church had read the Bible literally yeah. when it was deciding to ordain lesbians as priests, that never yeah. would have happened. Yeah. And so there, I think what's what the concern is, Frank, and I'd be interested in your take on this is that once people leave evangelicalism, they leave it to a certain level. Yeah. But there are still aspects of one's, I think, character, maybe there, maybe one's spiritual journey where you're still trying to speak backwards sure. to the community that you left. And mm-hmm. so if you can hold on to say like, oh, I still believe in a literal virgin birth, or I still believe in, um, yeah. you know, whatever the, the creedal literalism is or the biblical literalism is. Yeah. You can say to your friends who are back here, I may like think gay people can get married, but I'm still really Christian. Yeah, right. There's always, yeah, kind of defined. I think, you know, you were asking me my opinion. on. I think there's two things. I think that the the level of conditioning and trauma that comes with an evangelical background, even if one converts to it late, but is indoctrinated thoroughly, say goes to a seminary or a college, high school, let alone the kid raised in a homeschool family, is much deeper than we think. Yeah. And so since they are unwilling to deal with paradox and admit that the parts they're holding on to are not logical, but they have a psychological root in their own background and be happy with that and just admit that, um, everything is still sort of in the area of, of black and white truth. So for instance, people ask me why I still pray, yet at the same time describe myself as an atheist and then write, you know, say that I'm an atheist who believes in God, kind of a deliberate paradoxical statement. You know, in the old days, I would try to argue it and balance it. And I'm still this, I'm still that very much what you're talking about. And now I just say, that's the way my mother raised me. Have you got a problem with that? Or do you have any other better reason for how you are? And recognize that there's a complete separation between what is true, whether we know that or not, what the truth is, and how I feel about things, they're not one and the same. So what you bring with you from your background, once you understand that that's your personal baggage, but it is not a system of thought that makes sense. It's, 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 it's paradoxical, but somehow there's some peace in recognizing that rather than trying to make this all still fit together. But I think there's another reason and this, forgive my cynicism, And that is, I think a lot of people who earn their living from things that are related to theology, present company accepted, um, also are looking sometimes where the the book sales are, the fire is, the, the, the salary, and they look at a diminishing kind of return on liberal theology in terms of numbers and churches filled with graying heads and generational passage. And they say, well, you know, the, where, the, where the action is, is in that 20,000 member megachurch that you used to belong to. Uh, they probably all voted for Donald Trump and so forth. And so to relinquish, I, you know, without thinking of anybody specific in terms of the evangelical world, but to relinquish all ties with the sound and fury and book sales and speaking fees and all the rest of the more dynamic, fundamentalist, gung-ho, fired up, angry part of the thing. You know, if you're in this world, you're going to want to keep some sort of connection because, hey, that's where the action is. Now, that's not, that's, that's simplistic, but I'm afraid that's sometimes true. So like, how do you ever get invited back to speak at Wheaton College if you really burn the bridge? And, And, you know, whatever that might be. And that's what, you know, my life wound up doing was, burning certain kinds of bridges and you know and that's okay you know there are some places that you don't want to go back to even though you might want to still be friends with some people who are in those places it doesn't mean that you have that you owe those institutions an explanation and i do i do think you know sadly your cynicism is probably right 
you know, so you look at the religious market and you say, well, where's the action? And maybe you don't want to write books or have big book sales, but certainly most pastors want to have a big church. Well, that's what I meant. When I said books, I just brought it into my own territory, my own turf where I understand it better. But of course, I'm talking about church size and attendance and gifts and who puts money in the collection plate. And, you know, it's like those sermons you hear about, you know, interpreting the, the passages on wealth. And then the pastor quickly adds, but you know, the Bible's not against rich people. These are just, this is to illustrate a point because of course he's looking at the three people in the front row who (laughs) subsidize the church with their donations. And he doesn't want to piss off Harry here. He started an auto parts company and built the building. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going, if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support, and most of all, for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Well, I remember, um, you know, we have a thunderstorm moving overhead. Let me switch on some lights real quick. I'll be right back. You still look good. You still look good. good. (laughs) I think I'll be very dark in just a second. So, um, Oh, we don't want to get. We don't want to give information, ammunition to those who have denounced you as a heretic. You know, he, Diana Butler Bass comes on, and immediately her house is struck by lightning. <laughs> and we just please don't do that because it's gonna. You know, that's the bit that's gonna go viral. I think I'll be okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um. What What I was gonna say was, there was this thing that happened to me a long time ago. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, so, you know, I grew up in a world where when I looked at speakers like, you know, these big conferences I went to in college, the Urbana Missionary Conferences, and I saw people speaking at those and I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. And you see a speaker in a room with 18,000 college students and you just, there was a sense that they were going to you know, take over the world. There was power in all those numbers and everybody read those books and, and we knew their names and, and, you know, there was a kind of real Christian celebrity about it. And, and I thought that's something I would like to do. Um, But uh, years later, after I'd left evangelicalism and I was writing mostly about mainline churches, I was presenting one of my very early books um, to the United Church of Canada. And we were at this lovely conference center up in the Rockies in Canada. And there were a good number of people there, you know, maybe 200 people, 250. And this one pastor walks up to me and she says, "Um, Diana, I got to tell you how much I love this book. This book has changed the way I see the whole world. It's, it's, It's a revolutionary way of looking at congregations. As a matter of fact, I went out and I bought copies for every single person in my church to read yes yeah and i i i i don't know what my face looked like but she she realized she said oh um but i don't want you to get too excited because you know i'm having visions of the new york times bestseller list yeah and she said i don't want you to get too excited because there are 14 people in my church yeah that's that's like we're talking a book club here (laughs) right and um you know i remember standing there at first going like, oh, you know, 14 people. Yeah. But that became for me a real lesson in humility. Yeah. And it was, it was important for me to hear that at that moment, because I really appreciate those 14 people in that congregation in Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah. I, I still remember the, where the church was. I remember what the pastor looked like. And that they would spend time in their tiny church with my words and that my words meant something about their thinking about the future and what their faith meant to the world. Uh, What a treasure. And so I, it helped me rearrange sort of the spiritual priorities of my own life. 
And yeah. so you ask, you know, where are you now? And that's the universe I live in. I live in a universe that's smaller, yeah. that doesn't think as much about celebrity. As a matter of fact, it kind of looks a little askance at it. Yeah. Um, and recognizes that oftentimes the most beautiful and surprising things happen in ways that the culture doesn't notice. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, I totally get that. And it very, yeah. very much mirrors the, you know, my trajectory in terms of when I think about the stadiums we used to speak at when we took the seminar series, how should we then live and whatever happened, human race out and grand old Opry yeah. and, you know, New York and all this stuff. Um, let me switch gears here for a minute uh, and just reiterate what we're doing. We're talking to Diana Butler Bass. Her new book is Freeing Jesus. I have read it and I want to jump to a quote on page Thank 199 you. that I think summed up to me what the book is about. Now that's a big statement, but I'm gonna read it to you. Faith often needs to become more complex before it can become clear again. That sounds paradoxical, perhaps since we typically define faith as surety. Although it took a couple of years and much wrestling, I came to admit that Christianity itself as a human story is profoundly flawed, shot through with all the sins Jesus condemned. Much of its tradition is an exercise of power, and its institutions are far from perfect. Knowing this, I learned that faith must be cloaked in humility and open to honest criticism about where the church had gone wrong. And as a historian, I experienced a kind of graciousness that arises from knowing that in a century or two, we will probably be shown to have contributed to some great injustice or really stupid idea that is invisible to us now. I let go of the need to be so darn certain about things. And as far as I was concerned, uh, I would have put that on the jacket because I think that's the book. Well, thank you. And, and I think good. this. I it's think really the story. Good. That's I a just... great paragraph and sums up so much of your journey, mine as well. Many of us out there, like Brian McLaren and other friends of ours. But I really think that's the heart of your book. Now, of course, there's a lot more in it than that. But to me, you know, that declaration of uncertainty is so well put and really well backed up by the rest of your book. Well, I think that the story that I just told about the pastor in Edmonton, you know, it, it really feeds exactly. into that. I mean, I didn't plan to tell that. You didn't know that I was going to tell that no, story. And I had that passage picked out. But as soon as you told that story, I went right to my my little yeah. thing here. And and I I do think that that's the thing that I've learned most about Christianity is that yeah. at its best, it is an incredibly humble um set of practices yeah and even a set of humble beliefs yeah a and um the the book uh, you know i i think i've struggled in recent years trying to figure out why why do i why do i stay christian you know with all that's gone on and yeah. ma maybe it's a little like you saying about your mom teaching you how to pray yeah um part of the reason i certainly stay christian is that I can't imagine what else I would be. Yeah. And maybe that's just kind of a failure of my own theological imagination, but mm. it is who I am. It's the oldest language I know. Yeah. And, and so I, I have embraced that. And, mm. and the second part of that is around the person of Jesus. Mm. Um, because I think I could legitimately be who i am in some ways be jewish yeah uh because the values and the ways that i think i see christianity are very in line with the ways that rabbis who are friends of mine see their tradition hmm. and so you know i've uh, one time i did actually said of one of these friends i said you know oh gosh i i think all the time about maybe i should be jewish i wish i was jewish it would be maybe easier. And he goes, well, it wouldn't be easier. But he said also, um, he said, uh, 
you follow Jesus, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, he was a great rabbi. Just follow him. He'll, you'll be fine. Yeah. And um, that was a gift when he gave that moment to me Mm. because I, it it reminded me that really central to Christian identity is the person of Jesus. Mm. And so if I retain Christianity, somehow I have to retain Jesus. And I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure how to do that in recent years. Hmm. And that's what this book becomes. It becomes a a journey into developing a much more layered understanding. Yeah. um, I I found that of course, that's what the book is about, but, but um, the point it makes in the end, I think is the one that I just read, but yeah, I think, I think you're right too, actually. Yeah. My sense is that um, I just want to look at something here. Um, this kind of sums up to me, you know, your own journey to the book. Over, and this is on page 55. Over the years, I have wrestled with scripture, argued and learned from different colleagues, preachers and scholars and settled into an understanding of the Bible as a collection of inspired and extraordinary texts that rehearse the spiritual experiences of two ancient faith communities, Jews and Christians, and all the tensions, conflicts and struggles within and between them. My friend, Bible scholar Peter Enns, describes this much more simply. The Bible is ancient, ambiguous, and diverse. Like him, I have come to experience the Bible as, quote, an invention to join, an invitation to, in, to join an ancient, well-traveled, and sacred quest to know God, the world we live in, and our place in it, end quote. I wish someone had told me that in confirmation class, I am certain I would have understood that at 13 or rather. Yeah. Yeah. So, at 13. <laughs> yeah. My, my sense is that when you look at, um, you know, your journey, that kind of sums up that part of the journey that you then described as talking to this rabbi and so forth. Um, and I think that's, you know, succinctly sums that up. But I have a question for you that came out of a discussion I had with someone I interviewed the other day, the musician and composer Moby, who is also, uh, you know, a well-known um, musician. And if you get a chance, you should watch that interview because he, his, he is wrestling with these same questions. And he talked about Jesus as much as if he had been, you know, having written theology instead of, um, uh, you know, all the music he's written. But um, Moby and I were talking and, you know, when it comes to Jesus and the, the teachings of Jesus, and I just want to put this idea forward to you and you don't have to agree or disagree, but I'd like your comment on it. Um, I was telling him that my own reading and my own life journey has taken me to a position where I really feel we've got the horse and cart backward. When I look at the teachings of Jesus, I don't think they resonate because of Jesus. I think they resonate because of the very core nature of how we evolved to be a species that lives better in community and cooperation than it does in, in fighting. And that, you know, you look at the, the teaching and the, the writing of evolutionary scholars and evolutionary psychology and biology these days, and you find that they've moved from this survival of the fittest idea that people like Dawkins put forward in his book, The Selfish Gene, to a new place where the phrase now that has a lot of currency is the survival of the friendliest. Mm. So it seems to me that the reason Jesus's teaches resonate with Moby or with you or with me or whomever, aside from however our mothers raised us or the churches we went to or whatever, is that there's a very deep evolutionary instinct to cooperate and to do all those things Jesus says we ought to be doing. And it's a survival instinct because the choice is do that or die. Uh, and I don't mean spiritual death, I mean literally. Um, so children need multiple caregivers and they need them for years because our babies are born with, with big heads that have to develop outside the womb for years and child, child raising takes a long time. It does take a village. There are all these biological evolutionary re- reasons. So Jesus comes along or some other sage or rabbi, whomever, and basically succinctly draws up a list of sayings or is purported to have done that since we don't have any writings by Jesus. And those sayings last best when they resonate with who we actually are. Now, my father, the apologist Francis Schaeffer, would have turned around and said something to the effect of, aha, you see, you know, that is because this is the nature of human beings as created by God and God's image. And so it reflects that 
and he would have used that as an argument. But I think that you can equally say that morality preceded religion and teachings by people like Jesus. They only resonate because they happen to be true to the human condition. And essentially, religion itself is superfluous because what we really need to be listening to is evolution and what it has instructed us to do. And Jesus does a good job at doing that. Now, I'm not saying that's entirely my view, but I just want to throw that out to you because I respect your brain <laughs> and I want to hear from your brain. What do you, how does that strike you if we were saying, having this conversation over a drink in a bar? Oh, gosh. I, I could use a beer right now, I think. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you're allowed to have one, you know. <laughs> Sometimes in my cottage, there's nothing. If you want to take a break and go here. to the fridge. <laughs> I've still got a grandchild to care for this afternoon when we're done. So I'll wait and have my drink later, but you go ahead. Well, I, I think that the way that you, you point out this, this passage about me reading the Bible and right. what, what my friend Pete N says about the Bible. And part of the way that I understand the Bible is that it is a, it's, it is a collection of experiences, of insights, of wisdom, of people trying to deal with questions just like this. And yeah. I, my sense is that the major narrative arc of the Bible yeah. is that here were these people who understood God in a certain way, that the Jews, the ancient Hebrews, and they were looking around and it seemed like they were losing out actually in history and that the bad guys, the Babylonians and the Egyptians um, who lived on either side of them, uh, that they were the people who, you know, potentially were like the winners of history. Yeah. And so they have a question, you know, it's like, well, wait a second. Yeah. What, what does this mean? And so in that act of ritual and reflection that they did over time, you know, that, they came to the conclusion that we were created for community we're, and that's the garden story and Adam sure. and Eve and the animals and God walking around with Adam and Eve and every, everything was harmonious. Mm -hmm. So we were created for community in creation and then something happened. And the thing that Jews of course think happened is that we encountered this idea of conscience and as soon as you encounter the idea that human beings have a conscience which is the 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 tree of life uh, the tree of good and evil sure and and so as soon as you have this this idea that there's conscience then you understand that human beings have choices and so whereas before it was all harmonious now all of a sudden somehow we had choices to make between mm -hmm. good and evil and you get to Genesis four and what happens is the, the, the sin is not that they ate the fruit and had conscience mm -hmm. that the fruit gave them the capacity for this moral choice. Yeah. And you get to Genesis four and that's where the word sin first occurs. And what is the first sin? The first sin is violence. And so the biblical narrative itself teaches us that the abuse of conscience, mm. that our ability to choose what is not God, yeah, um, that that will lead to us actually committing these acts of violence in which we destroy our own family, mm -hmm. the Cain and Abel story. Yeah. And so where do, and, and as the Old Testament unfolds, you go a little further down into the narrative and you get to Deuteronomy and God says to the people of Israel through Moses, I lay before you today, two ways, yeah. a way of life and a way of death and clearly says you choose. Mm -hmm. And the the 10 commandments of course um are the outline of the moral way of life which you're talking mm -hmm. about is that moral conscience consciousness yeah. a way of goodness that creates community that sustains relationships that builds people's um senses i think of empathy sympathy compassion which are things that have built in the human race over time um and this other way, the way of death, that was the way of Cain, of Cain and Abel, that yeah. continual choosing of, of, 
of doing harm to even your closest family members. And so the, the, the Hebrew scriptures become that story between mm-hmm. the times in which Israel chose well and the times in which Israel chose badly. Yeah. And so I think the sense that Jesus then enters into that story and Jesus is always urging people (laughs) to choose well, love God, love your neighbor, um, understand that the poor are blessed. Uh, At the end, I love Matthew uh, chapter 25. Where Jesus is laying out this, you know, kind of scenario of of, of sure. judgment, and uh, the people who are ushered into the love and union with God are people who cared for prisoners and and took care of widows and orphans and who yeah. shared clothes and food with the poor, and the people who are, go the wrong way are those who have chosen war and violence and being cut off from their neighbors and yeah. and so that's the story. That's the story. Yeah. But my, my, my question and my point, uh, I, I won't call it a point. My question, you know, that has seemed more obvious to me as years have gone by is that none of this would have resonated with human beings if the evangelical version of this story that you just told was true. And that was until the Bible came along and showed us how to be. Right. And until Jesus further refined how to be, we didn't know any of this stuff. We that's correct. We needed all of this. And of course, you know, and I'll just give just throw out a random example. Fifty three thousand years ago, according to the latest studies on this subject, human beings and dogs bonded and co-evolved from there on to the point we now share cancers together. We share the same hormonal structures in our brains and experiences of love. Um, because someone decided that instead of killing all the wolves, we would throw one a bone. And that one drew near to the fire, started protecting that family. And you had this kind of cooperation between canine and human before there was writing, maybe before there was language, a long time before anybody had even thought of inventing a god or gods or goddesses or anything else. And at the very beginning of human consciousness, we have so much... uh, bonding and in sort of an empathetic manner that we're even doing it with a canine species outside of our own tribe. Our hunter-gatherers are going out and very soon learn that if you don't share, <laughs> your, your own people are going to die. Now there's no one to defend the camp. There's no one to raise the babies. They didn't need Jesus for this or the Bible or the Jews or the Christians or anyone else. This is why human beings are still here at all, because right. they were not all Cain you know, murdering Abel, or we'd all be gone in the first breath. So what I don't understand so much about my own background is the lack of humility that says, you know, 5,000 years ago, we invented some writing 10,000 years before that we were, you know, identified as these creatures 53,000 years ago, we were bonding with dogs, you know, 100,000 years before that we were not who we are today. And we're acting as if the only reason we're here is if somehow none of that history occurred, but we got Jesus in the Bible a few minutes ago, and that showed us the way. Well, it didn't, because we're here because evolution essentially uh, favored those who did what Jesus told us thousands of years after we were already doing that. And I think that um, I was raised on the idea that if we didn't have this book, we wouldn't know any of this stuff. Mothers wouldn't love their children. It would just be war and chaos everywhere. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wouldn't be because the very process of evolution itself taught these lessons. And the only reason any of this resonates, or I'll put it another way, the only reason any religion survives and becomes a global force is if somewhere in that religion is a nugget of something that actually ties into the reality of who human beings are, which is are creatures that evolved to cooperate. Religions yeah. that don't go in that direction go the way of Stalinism. And you know, they, they this, go away. And so, you know, I just want to throw that out there in the strongest terms and get your reaction to it. Well, you know, honestly, my strongest reaction is I, th- I think that there's incredible level what you're saying that is quite correct. You know, I, I lean now theologically into something that's referred to as process theology. Yeah. And uh, process theologians understand that, you know, creation is 
very yeah. ancient and yeah. that it has been speaking something sacred since before our our wildest imaginings yeah and so as a person who looks back beyond the last 2000 or 4000 or 6000 years yeah. just in these biblical monotheistic traditions you know i mean richard rohr talks about this in his book the universal christ you know it's right. basically what can you say jesus 2000 years ago that's like a, a half of a blink of a an eye in the 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 cosmic timeline and yeah. so the the idea that there is something built into the cosmos that is about the ex, the expansion of of compassion yeah i can't prove it um but i definitely trust that there is some and this is where probably i would have some disagreements with some scientists but i i do trust there is some sort of of i guess ethical desire mm -hmm. that is part of the evolutionary process um and that and like predates the, everything we're talking about and predates language let alone theology or any concept right. of god or anything by millennia that's not correct like it, a few minutes it predates all of it and i think the, the the thing that was getting me kind of riled up as soon as you were talking is see i actually believe that the the impulse in some christian traditions to extinct other religions comes from this right because if you think about the the christian uh, encounter in the 15th century and 16th centuries with indigenous peoples around the world right you have and this does not say that christians were all bad and indigenous peoples were all good but but yeah. the, the, the question was here you had these cultures that were untouched by any level of the Jesus story mm -hmm. and any level of monotheism as we would know it. Sure. And yet they were doing those things that you talked about. Mothers love children. They had developed, you know, confederacies of peacemakers in order to yeah. protect their societies. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of stuff that yeah. was empathetic and compassionate and morally acceptable while they also had things that were not so good because yeah. um, human beings are like that human beings right. make great choices human beings make bad choices yeah um but when christians ran into those cultures there was no other way they they either had to say that they had to be converted because they got everything wrong yeah and they, they'd been godless since the very beginning or yeah. you had to exterminate them yeah because, because in they, a way their very presence and cohesion and compassion is a rebuke because it's like then what do right. we need jesus for they're doing all this stuff anyway that's exactly right yeah and i have a I that becomes have, problematic for mission yeah. culture i mean deeply problematic yeah and a tradition we understand i have a, a question from susan uh who says you both speak of reverting um, to things, practices, you know, from childhood, I was raised not in church, converted as a teen, went in deep, and I'm now out again. My question is, how much of where you find yourselves in a post-evangelical practice is, in a sense, a reversion in practice to what you know because of how you were raised? I love that question. <laughs> um, in a very real way, uh, freeing Jesus answers the question. And what I what I do is try to show that you can honor your your own journey. And so I take the my readers through my earliest memories of Jesus as friend and teacher, and then my evangelical memories, Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then more recent memories of Jesus as the way and Jesus as presence. Yeah. And I don't romanticize any of those, nor do I particularly attack any of those. Instead, I simply tell the stories. This is what I've learned through my life. And then as 62-year-old Diana, I evaluate each one of those different ideas and pick up the aspects of them that are meaningful to my life now. So yeah. while I, I, I loved writing actually the chapters on Jesus as friend and teacher in the middle of a pandemic, mm. because I couldn't see my friends and I yeah. had no one to teach. 
Yeah. And so to write these two chapters about my earliest memories of Jesus was it was it was glorious. It was healing. It was life giving for me. Yeah. But what I learned is I don't experience Jesus as friend like I did when I was three. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Yeah. So I kept the idea, mm -hmm. but I don't revert to it. Yeah. I, you know, you know, where I find myself reverting a little more is in the area of childcare with these youngest grandchildren of mine. I find that my answers to them are ones that my mother would like better than what I talk about with you, because there I'm confronted with children asking questions as children. And of course, I go back to the answers I was given as a child. Now I modify those so that I read Bible stories to them. I also read them a lot of Greek mythology. And Nora, when she was five, I asked her, we say grace at the table. I do all the things that would please my mother, but here's what would not have pleased my mother. When Nora was five, I said to her, Nora, would you like to say grace? She's heard Greek mythology and Bible stories. And I've never said one is true and you'll go burn in hell if you don't believe it. And the other is just a story. My mother would have made that very clear. This is just stories, ours is true. So I asked her to say grace and she folded her hands very piously, which is funny because we don't do that, which means she's been looking at art and pictures of people with praying like this. Yeah. And she says, oh, Athena and all the gods, <laughs> we thank you for this food. And I thought I heard my mother just spinning in her grave. I mean, it was like, OK, that's not how you say grace. And she's picked up entirely the wrong stories. But at least she's got some idea that you thank somebody out there. You know, it's funny because um, when uh, my daughter, Emma, was really yeah. little, um, yeah. you know, all my friends are these pretty well-known, you know, theologians and Bible critics. And yeah. one of my closest friends when he was uh, still alive was Marcus Borg, who mm -hmm. was very well-known New Testament sure. scholar. And uh, Marcus loved Emma. He was kind of like a second uncle to her. And yeah. whenever we visited their house in Oregon, he would always take her for these drives and they'd go out hiking together and all this kind of stuff. And I never really knew what they talked about. So one Christmas, Emma comes home it's a few weeks before Christmas and uh, she comes home from Sunday school and we're driving home in the car. So we raised her in the Episcopal church. And um, she said, mom, we talked about the wise men today in Sunday school. And I said, Oh, you did. what did you talk about? And she said, did you know there are Christians who think the wise men were real? <laughs> and I said, right. Oh, there, there are. Well, tell yeah. me about it. And she, said, <laughs> and she said, Uncle Marcus says that the wise, that Matthew made up the wise men to make the point that Jesus was king. And she said, but the people in my Sunday school class, they think the wise men were like real. Yeah. And, and, and so here she was being raised in church, yeah. but she heard these other ways of interpreting the stories from the time she was really young. And she has literally, she's 23 now, she majored in religious studies at the University of Virginia, and she has literally had to deconstruct nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, difference. I, I just, I kind of like, I, I'm astonished, and, I, and it's so beautiful, and people say, well, did she lack wonder about Christmas? And it's like, no. Yeah. Uh, not at all, because the the beauty of the idea of a gift given God hmm. who becomes embodied in creation, that's still communicated amazingly yeah. through the, the rituals and the hymns and the celebration. Yeah. And and that's the point. And we didn't have to clutter it up with all these, you know, these other kinds of things saying yeah. oh you have to believe xyz we were yeah. just very straightforward about it and said you know this is these are stories yeah and of course from my background the very fact that you could discuss any part of scripture as just hey maybe this part's just a story or they made it up to make a point would have been like well then you're not a real christian but you know yeah. that right okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap this up but i want everybody to understand that um this is a good book and uh, Freeing Jesus is really excellent. It, if, if you've never read anything else of Diana Butler Bass, I, start with this one because it's really good. And I've just read it. So it's very fresh in my mind. 
I only took, pulled two of the quotes out, but they fit in well with what you were talking about, weren't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. That was a nice, a nice happenstance. So uh, I'm very, I'm very glad that you like this book, by the way, because I do like it. Yeah, because I, I, I thought I keep you in mind a lot when I write. Thank you. Just because I think your story is so fascinating, and also I, I think you bear witness to yeah. evangelicalism in some pretty important and meaningful ways. And I would like my work to be able to speak to the heart of that. Well, I'll, and, I'll pay you the highest compliment I know how to pay a book, and then I'll stop you because you're being too nice to me. I'm not used to this. Um, <laughs> Frank, I'm always nice to you. Yeah, you're, you're always nice to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, Freeing Jesus is a book that I, I plan on giving my 12-year-old granddaughter, Lucy, to read because we have a lot of discussions coming out of my criticisms of things and what she hears, but her ongoing interests. And I want her to understand that, um, you know, I want her to hear the beautiful articulation you've made of why her old crazy grandfather is still all bound up with questions about this. And this book kind of explains that because you've written a very luminous text. Thank you. Uh, And thank you for taking the time here. So we will draw a line under this and I'll remind people you're watching Frank Schaefer live on YouTube. This will be on Facebook. Uh, It is all available as a podcast. Please sign up, uh, subscribe, do all the things that keep people like me floating along um, and able to make programs like this. And I hope I run into you out on the road somewhere or sooner uh, and all the best with the book. Uh, Keep me posted on how it all goes and share this with people because I think this interview is a good one about your book. Well, thank you. You ask great questions and you always keep me on my toes. Well, much love to you and happy birthday to your husband. Thank you. It's good to see you. And I look forward to that next time we're together too. Yeah, me too. All right. Free to go. Much love. Bye-bye. Bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.